The Eyes to the Left. Hello and welcome to Eyes to the Left, the Mirror's political podcast. My name is Jason Beatty and I'm joined today by Kevin Maguire and Nicola Bartlett. Both Kevin and Nicola are doing dry January, so you're going to get some very sober analysis from at least two of us. And we're going to be talking about the week's political events, which started with some warning, I have to say, with the collapse of Carillion. And why is this so important, Kevin? Well, it's a huge company in construction and contracting, delivering of services, big private sector um, presence, but it is also doing a lot of government work from contracting. And it delivers everything from school meals to building hospitals, running bits of prisons, massive. And it's going to be a big hit, terrible for the people who are directly employed, uh, indirectly employed, people in small companies. But it goes right to the heart, I think, of a problem with capitalism in Britain today, uh, the interaction between the public sector and the private sector, which is this contracting culture, is creating these huge, giant firms which can be incredibly profitable. When they fail, it's disastrous. And it's appalling for the people who work for them and the taxpayers and the people who get those services. Because this private finance initiative, which is what they're using in the public sector, it came up with 1992 and Norman Lamont, Tory treasurer, the Tories ran it. Labour should have shut it down, but instead expanded it. And it is still going on under the Conservatives now. And we're chucking good taxpayers' money after bad, normally to give fat cats huge profits in the private sector and poor value for money in the public sector. And then it will go wrong, as it has in Carillion, where they got some projects... Uh, monstrously wrong. So a big political question as well, not just the system, but this company issued three profit three. warnings and run up to Christmas, and the government, in the form of Chris Grayling, the Transport Secretary, failing Grayling, um, I will try not to swear about him this time, he then awarded yet more government contracts to this company which was in danger. So but whether they were to prop it up, or whether it's because they have this kind of ideological belief that Private is good and public is bad. Again, you see, all the profits go to the, pri- uh, the private sector. The public sector is bearing the risk. And he, is, he was subsidising. Grayling, given HS2 contracts, ISB2 contracts, was subsidising a failing company. And he was using public money to do that. The government's excuses, well, they insisted these were joint projects or the firms were involved so they would pick them up and they won't collapse completely. Well, that might be so. But we're still using public money to prop up, subsidise, protect, line the pockets of big private companies which don't deliver value for money. It would be much better building your schools if you if you own them yourselves. The same with hospitals, it's the same with roads. Yeah, and the flaw of the system is that these firms bid for these state contracts, but to be competitive, they go for the lowest possible margins and then they, the executives get rich, but they then squeeze the workers. You know, one of the examples of Carillion was they had a lot of zero-hours contracts, yep. they blacklisted yep. unions. Yeah. So, so but that was how they made the money. It was actually the lowest, worst possible working conditions, maximum profits, but they still couldn't make, make a profit out of it. No, they, they got a couple of contracts that went wrong, a hospital in Birmingham, one in Liverpool, a road up in, in Scotland, some dodgy overseas moves in the, in the Middle East and so on. And they... Yeah, they, they make their money by running the hospitals, by running the schools, by changing the, the broken windows in a prison or not. And they charge the taxpayer a fortune. 
So I'm sure some of these Karelian contracts will just be picked up by other private uh, private companies which will cash in on them. It's just not good value for us, for taxpayers, for the public. And, and Nicola, how, how damaging is this for, for, for Theresa May's government, do you think? I think the, um, the sheer scale of, of Karelian uh, as, as a company uh, going under has just really brought home to people how, how much these firms like Quillian uh, are, are invested in, as you say, the, the public services that we rely on. And Theresa May and her government are very much, you know, kind of married to this company. It's, it's doing everything, you know, even serving school dinners, um, every aspect of our lives. And I think the Tories are, you know, incredibly linked with, the, with what happens now. They've said that they won't bail out a failing private sector company. But in order to keep the show on the road when it comes to the public sector, they're going to have to make certain allowances and they're going to be punished for that by people. This, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn has suggested this might be a watershed moment um, in terms of uh, private companies providing public services. And maybe that's kind of wishful thinking on his part because this is an ideological position he's always held. But I think it has certainly opened people's eyes um, to, the, to the kind of close interaction between these companies, which, as you say, were kind of creaming of profits for for the bosses. I think they only had something like a 2% profit margin, which just from somebody who knows nothing about business sounds like a very risky endeavour altogether. So I think this, this really is going to hurt Theresa May a lot, I think. Yeah, and just one last thing, you know, that they are now seem to be siding with a company where the bosses and shareholders took £400 million in in dividends and the hole in the pension scheme was £600 So anybody looking just as a kind of glance at how capitalism works is going to go, hang on, that's not right. Why aren't there better regulations of this? And it's not the first time, you know, this is something Jeremy Corbyn will talk about PMQs in a minute, Prime Minister's question in a minute, but Jeremy Corbyn raised this, you know, in the Olympics, we had G4S unable to provide the security. They had to bring in the police for the army. Then we've had the East Coast mainline contracts, the franchises for running that. First National Express had to pull out. Then they handed it back to another private consortium of Stagecoach and Virgin, which is pulling out early because it doesn't want to pay the $2 billion it bid for the contract. This keeps happening. We've had, you know, we've had ATOS doing benefits. We've had, you know, all sorts of problems all the way down the line with these contracts. And yet the toys religiously stick to it. Well, it has us all in the, in the public voters, taxpayers, whatever you want to call us, citizens, subjects, if you're a monarchist. It has us all working for these private companies. These private companies are supposed to work for us. But they're just milking the system. You, you, you rattle through them. And Theresa May likes that mantra, you know, a country working for everyone. It, it, hang on. The country's not working for everyone. We're working for Carillion and Stagecoach and G4S and Branson sitting in his tax haven. This is completely wrong. I'd love it to be a watershed moment, as Jeremy Corbyn said. I was hoping that the collapse of the banks and their nationalisation mm. in 2008 was going to be a watershed moment, but it wasn't. They were soon back uh, with their snouts in the trough, getting their bonuses, and they didn't suffer as much as the people who lost their jobs because they pulled down half the economy with them, these greedily reckless uh, banksters. It should be a watershed moment. And Jeremy Corbyn's ideally placed to represent change, represent the public, represent taxpayers, because he never went along with PFI. Labour, Labour should have shut it down rather than expanding it, but he wasn't with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown when they were expend, expanding it. Theresa May backs it. She's just ideologically committed to this model of capitalism that is not working. Yeah. I think there's kind of several problems 
with, with the situation that we have there. I mean, PFI was seen by the Labour government as a, as a way to get money quickly to deal with chronic underfunding of public services under the Tories. And I think the problem is nobody has made a proper case for funding these services. We kind of, in Britain, live in denial. We want world-class NHS education, but we've never discussed properly how it's going to be paid for. And the problem now is that we've actually lost the ability to provide a lot of these services in-house because councils no longer have... They used to have building departments. Yeah, I mean, public works departments. Yeah, which very, councils very haven't big. employed builders for years. They haven't even employed their own kind of occupational health for years. Most councils don't even own their housing stock. In order to completely rejig the system, it would take an incredible amount of money. And that's the problem that, that we have now, I think, is that you can hit out at what the situation is, but in order to kind of turn the clock back, we're going to need to have a huge rethink about how we fund it. It would, but the, the public obligation now on PFI contracts is enormous. Yeah. It's, it's hundreds of billions. We're spending a fortune now, just we're not getting good value for money. It's much better to build and own your own hospital from the start, build and own your own school from the start, build and own your own council houses from the start, rather than wasting money on uh, some buying scheme which just inflates prices. I think it, it, it is, it, this is where it could be a watershed moment. I, I'm not going to create confidence that it will be, yeah. but it should be. And, and as you said, this was the kind of a perfect pulpit for Jeremy Corbyn at Prime Minister's Questions today. He used all six questions on, on Carillion. How do you think he did? I actually didn't think he did that well. Uh, I was I was disappointed. Uh, he's he's had a good run. He's much better than he used to be. There was a time you were just happy if you if you were willing him on that he would get up, would knock his water over, drop his papers, and uh, fall into the <laughs> so, microphone. So our expectations are raised. They <laughs> are, and uh, this is look, he passionately believes in better the public public sector, public service, reforming capitalism, making the country better fighting for people and that PFI is bad. I just thought he let May to some extent off the hook. She sounded really pathetic when she said, look, the, the government were just the consumers, not the managers. If you're losing your job or your services uh, jeopardised or you're going to lose a lot of money, you want more than you want more than that from a Prime Minister. I thought she was absolutely useless, but I just didn't think he pinned her down until he got going at the at the end when he was talking about how PFI is a costly racket and he mentioned the companies you raised earlier Stagecoach, Branch and Branson and Virgin, G4S, Capital and of course Carillion itself but I just thought he should have nailed it better early on. Do, do you agree that you know Theresa May I thought lacked empathy and should have shown more kind of understanding of those who are about to lose their jobs in Carillion and if anything Corbyn was guilty of being too too passionate he cared so deeply about this he could have almost couldn't quite marshal his arguments to pin the Prime Minister down. Is that a fair assessment? Um, yeah, I think that that probably is fair. I do think, to give Corbyn credit, um, he was, you know, he knew exactly where to to hit the Prime Minister on on Carillion, um, and it, it was in terms of jobs and you know the ordinary people who are now suffering because of this it's another huge story where you can get kind of bogged down in figures and I think he kind of avoided doing that too much the difficulty as Theresa May was quick to point out is that a third of Carillion's contracts were awarded under Labour um, well a third were under the coalition a third under the Tories 
And I thought he could have kind of preempted that a little bit um, because that was an obvious attack for her to make and say something like, you know, we acknowledge that, that mistakes were made in the past because he is so different to, to the Blair government and Brown governments that have come before. He doesn't need to take the flack for that in a way. And I thought he could have done a little kind of defensive move manoeuvre which would maybe have... Um, you know, protected him from losing his. He's a bit apt sometimes to um, to lose his stride or lose his train of thought when he gets attacked, and and I think that he's a kind of missed an opportunity there. Well, he it's rather like Iraq she voted against. Uh, you can quite easily attack Iraq. No one can pin it to him. No one can pin PFI to him because he voted against it and was against it from the beginning. You'll have to take the odd jibe about the last Labour government, but he'd probably share it. Yeah, but one crime you can't hold against Corbyn is guilt of association with the Blair family. <laughs> no, when he, when, he was, when he was frozen out. So he was a much better leader of the opposition than half a Tory one. So he, he, can, he, can, he, he can do far more convincingly than Ed Miliband uh, ever did that. It's not being about anti-business, it's about being against business as usual. And the way business has done now does not work for most people. You can just make that force me. And I just didn't feel yeah. he did it well enough. I thought he was more like sitting at GCE pit or an O-level or whatever you call him now. <laughs> whatever the exam is now, that kid's <laughs> Whatever that is, that is, GCSE, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I thought it was like sitting an exam paper on it rather than using a stage-in parliament and the country watching on TV and looking for the clips. You just go from hammer and tongs and you make the economic and the moral and the political case for reform. And you could have hung some of Theresa May's own words yeah. about how capitalism works in the markets aren't working around her neck. And he, I think he failed to do that. You know, yeah. put the pressure on the Prime Minister, you know, this is happening on your watch. Yeah. You're the ones who oversee these contracts. You're the ones who fail to collect, monitor and regulate the contracts going to Carillion. You know, all of this is your responsibility. And I, and I think he's, she kind of stonewalled. I thought she was a very remote, distant, slightly speak your weight machine answers. But it got her out of the hole, I think. It, 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 it did. He also, at one point, you get up and you're supposed to ask a question at the end and he didn't ask a question. And she said rather smugly, look, I'll answer if you ask a question. Truth is, she never answers when he asks a question. But it allowed her side to cheer and he could see the Labour side knew he, he dropped a clanger there. But maybe it was because he was overconfident, because he knows it inside mm -hmm. out and backwards and forwards and so on. And he just didn't apply himself in the normal way because he thinks everybody will just agree with them. Perhaps that, that was the case. Uh, it hasn't been the best of weeks for the Prime Minister, but we could say about every week. Uh, and uh, aside from uh, Carillion, she's also had a problem with her new vice chair of the Conservative Party. Uh, Nicola, do you want to talk to us about um, Ben Bradley, the 28-year-old MP, Tory MP for Mansfield, who's now meant to be in charge of recruiting more young people to the Conservatives. How's his week going? Uh, I wouldn't <laughs> say he's having the best week. He's probably frantically deleting everything he's ever written on the internet uh, currently. Um, he was exposed for uh, a blog post, I think he wrote it when he was 22, um, basically suggesting that the unemployed should have vasectomies um, to... Uh, um, stop them having children, basically, which, um, you know, if that doesn't sound like eugenics or um, uh, social cleansing, I don't know what does. Um, he had some really kind of outrageous comments uh, on this blog post and basically warned that uh, if, if they didn't do that, then the UK would be I think it was overcome uh, with a sea of wasters. Um, Charming man. Yes, lovely, lovely man. Um, it's 
slightly awkward for the Prime Minister having promoted him last week. Um, he's also meant to be, well, he's been talking a lot recently about the Tories' digital presence and uh, how they're not doing enough on, on Twitter and Facebook and so on. So he's kind of been hoist by his own petard on that one. Um, and um, the uh, his back catalogue online kind of keeps coming. Today it's been revealed that he said that um, he said that in public sector workers, he was basically arguing in favour of public sector pay cap. He said if public sector workers didn't like it, they should um, quit their jobs and do something else. So Hello, yeah, nurses, teachers, firefighters, police officers, soldiers, council workers, social workers, housing officials, coast guards, civil servants, <laughs> people in job centres. I mean, he's a Tory brat. And they presented him as their that rising star. Back to the beat. But yeah. the, 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 <laughs> he's clearly, he might be a shooting star and uh, gone very, very quickly. He's not going to endear himself to young, young people. I think it's about 190 families with 10 or more children in the category he's, uh, he's uh, adopted. Uh, were drawing, uh, drowning in a vast sea of unemployed wasters was what he, uh, he said Britain would be. Because this was the height of David Cameron and George Osborne drawing distinctions between the deserving poor and, and the undeserving poor because we wanted to draw battle lines and get low-paid workers to attack people who were unemployed and so on. It, it, paid, it played to every base instinct demonising and scaremongering and misrepresenting. So the Conservatives could then justify cutting the pay of nurses and teachers, reducing the in-work benefits for low-paid workers in the public and the private sectors, it's, and bringing in benefit and, cuts for everybody, including those who, who work. The problem in Britain isn't these families, although I, I agree, I wonder why they want so many children, but what do you do if you cut their money? It's the children who will suffer, you're going to take them into care, it'll be far more expensive. But it, the problem isn't, isn't them, the problem in Britain is chronic law pay, when you've got more than half the people who are poor are actually in work, but on law wages, and now they're having their benefits cut. And it, it, it really contrasts with, there we have Theresa May making excuses going soft on Carillion fat cats who've been subsidised in their incredible salaries by the public sector and then they turn, we find out, they turn once again on a small number of people who they demonise. They don't demonise the Carillion directors, they demonise a few people who who are on benefits. And it is this kind of sick, vile, bigoted, prejudiced politics. And just to be this full circle, one of the issues we got with Carillion is they're paying their workers so low they had to claim tax Absolutely. So the taxpayer was losing out anyway. We were were subsidising the low wages of of big private firms whose bosses were making more than a million pounds a year. Yeah, a a former former chief who has still get, he's lost his job, but he's still getting £55,000 a month. It's just, it's indefensible what Carillion did. And yet again, I bet you you we can't unearth any attacks by this Ben Bradley on companies. I bet you will find he's always been punching down and never punching up. Are we being unfair on on politicians by kind of raking over what they said on social media in their youth or not? I mean, are we all going to have skeletons in our closet as a result of this? Or do we think it's a huge... Thank to unless, he, unless he can show a moment where he says, I've completely changed and I disown everything I said, then, uh, then now we may have found out the true character of this charmer. What I, do you think? I don't think 22 is, is, is actually too young to be held accountable for what you said by any means. I mean, he was clearly trying to be provocative and trying to get people to read this blog that he was writing when he was 
a student and trying to get involved in politics. But, you know, I can safely say that I've never made those comments uh, online anyway. It, it, it's not a surprise to anyone that, that the comments we make online are still available. We knew that, you know, I, I'm the same age as Ben Matley and I think we knew that at, at that point as well. And I think you're right, I think when we unearth these comments, I think that may be people's true character. I mean, obviously there are people who do undergo a change um, um, and, you know, they've shown some signs of maturing or changing their opinion, but I certainly don't think we've seen any evidence so of that from Mr Bradley. This is in, in Twitter veritas, so to speak, but, you know, this is going to be seeing as a true character of these people, yeah, well, which mean, they probably wouldn't say in, in public on a kind of, kind of larger public stage. I mean, it may be that he doesn't, um, you know, hold with the... He, he's distanced himself, obviously, from these comments. Um, he distanced himself from himself. Yeah, it's quite a, <laughs> quite a manoeuvre. But I wonder if that's the way he made them rather than the, the instinct behind them. I mean, there's probably a number of people in the Tory party who agree with it. Yeah, well, I believe in redemption and people changing uh, and going on a journey. That's all. That's all good and true. But I just can't see where he where he signalled he, he actually changed. And you get somebody might have been a drug addict or an alcoholic or whatever, and have been doing certain behaviours because they're in such a way. I mean, he may have been a certain type of Tory, and he's a different type of Tory now. But it, you know, where 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 did he fork? Where did he go? He, yeah, he just seems to be embarrassed that he got caught. And there is this substantial problem for Conservatives. They're down to, they say, fewer than 70,000 members. The majority of those members are old and yeah. white. Yeah, and, dying. And dying, <laughs> and with quite, kind of, I would say, old-fashioned views, to put it very politely. And yet these people select the Tory candidates. They will get to vote in the next Tory leadership election. That's a very small constituency to choose the next leader of a country. It, it, it is. And tiny compared to what Labour's now the largest single party in Europe. Yeah, and bigger than the Conservatives, Liberal Democrats, SNP, Plaid, Greens, uh, and everybody else put together in the, in the UK. But if Ben Bigot... Uh, is supposed to be as his vice chair uh, for, for youth. If he's supposed to be getting youth on the side, he's going to struggle now because one thing you can say about young people is they will not like what he said. If it strikes a chord with anyone, it will be older people who have bought that um, propaganda and bought the caricatures. But young people won't, won't go for that. He's, this is going to dog him everywhere he goes. It was, it was a right. huge respect by two years ago. She should have gone with somebody younger, more in touch with young people like Jacob Rees Mock, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> 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 has a, a very popular Instagram page, so um, he's doing his bit for See, the he's Tories. He's people that he understands new media better than anybody else. met with <laughs> I'm a Celebrity Winner uh, Toff the but, other week. But, but, but Jacob Rees Mock, aren't people just rubbernecking? It's rather like driving past a, a motorway pile. Up, you slow down and you look at it, <laughs> and you, just, you want to see what this old phobia has, has said now. Very quickly, uh, while we're talking about party membership, we had uh, the results of the election for Labour's National Executive Committee. This is the what they call the kind of a main governing body for the Labour Party in charge of its rules, selections, uh, etc. Uh, the three new places created, of which they all went to supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, including the Momentum's John Lansman. Now, this has caused a little bit of kind of um, 
upset amongst some of the Labour Party members and the MPs. They're a bit worried about the consequence of this. Should they be afraid, Kevin? Is this a no, is no. this Corbyn tightening his grip on the Labour Party? I think I think yes, but I don't think they should be be afraid. I, I think it was a good argument for the for the members and the constituencies to get extra seats. They had six. They've now got nine. That's what a thirty-nine uh, member body, uh, because membership has mushroomed to more than half a million, and they. They won, the left slate won all six seats that were up last time, last year, so you would have expected them to win the three again, but they're still in a minority, and they're not the militant tendency the way they are often often portrayed. And Yes, they will want to bring in mandatory reselection, which has made you have to automatically ask people to challenge your local MP, rather than at the moment trigger ballots where an MP can just be readopted unless the local party wants to get them out or wants to have a look at uh, somebody else. But I think you can just see how it's going. Labour is really at root, at the grassroots, a party that should and is from the bottom up. So you would expect members that have more say over, over candidates, more say in the NEC, more say on the policies, more say in the leader, as they now do. And I think, I think people, some people just have to relax a bit. And what about you, Nicholas? What do you think of these changes? It seems quite insignificant, but it could upset the kind of harmony within the Labour Party since the general election. But it seems you've got an understanding between kind of the opponents of Jeremy Corbyn and his supporters that a lot of the tension and backbiting seems to have kind of dissipated. And now this seems to danger of, of it stirring it all up again or not? Yeah, I think that's the main concern is that there had been a kind of almost a truce um, since the general election between. Uh, maybe warring factions is too strong, but different people mm. of different views within the Labour Party. Um, I, I think to a certain extent Kevin's right that people do need to sort of calm down. Personally, I, I'm really against mandatory reselections. I, I don't see the point of them. Um, it's, up, it's already up to the local party to trigger it if they want, and that's who it should be up to. The local party knows who will represent their area best. And I also worry about the amount of work this is going to create for the regional offices within the Labour Party as a lot of bureaucracy goes into selections. Um, but I, I think, you know, it's kind of incumbent on all sides at the moment to, to kind of have a different way of speaking to one another. I mean, especially Landsman, who, you know, is incredibly respected within the Labour movement, I would say, overall. But he's got to maybe give a little bit to assuage some of these fears from some of the more moderates. I think there is potential to kind of, you know, Labour came through that really nasty period and that surprise, su- surprising result at the general election kind of gave it an opportunity for the party to kind of reconcile each other. And if people retreat to their comfortable factions and uh, there is a danger that that, that whole... Um, kind of antipathy between groups will be resurrected but I don't think it has to be this way I think it's there is an opportunity for it to be a really cohesive force I, don't, I, don't think, I never see Landsman as a bogeyman as some MPs did I think during the 1980s and the Benite battles when he was a big supporter of Tony Benn I think he was very sectarian then I don't think he is sectarian now I think he's older and wiser although and it wasn't just momentum, other people did it on the Labour NEC too, removing Anne Black as chair of the disputes panel and, and replacing it with Christine Shawcroft was an error because I think Anne Black was very, very straight. She was on the left, always been on the left. I remember the Blairites hating her. 
uh, and she would, she would be very, very objective. I don't want to smear Christine Shawcroft, who I think was uh, smeared straight off by uh, some, of, some of her opponents, claiming she voted to, to drop inquiries into anti-Semitism, which wasn't true. But I think, I think momentum and its supporters have to be a little careful, otherwise you're just going to appear to be as intolerant as some of the people who used to denounce in the past when the Blairites were on top. Really interesting stuff, and I agree with you on Anne Black, who was always, I thought, one of the nicest people. Oh, yeah, uh, big in unison, yeah. Yeah, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back again next week. Uh, Please go to mirror.co.uk where you can listen to the podcast and you can subscribe and leave reviews, hopefully not too negative. Uh, My name is Jason Beattie. You can follow me at Twitter uh, at at jbtmirror. Kevin is on Twitter. Kevin underscore McGuire. And Nicola. Nicola R. Bartlett. We'll be back soon. We've got uh, two special guests lined up in the next couple of weeks, so it should be interesting. Thank you very much.